You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 4th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, a day of mourning is declared in Iran after nearly 100 people die in two explosions. We'll examine the reaction to an event which could have deeply destabilising effects on the region. Meanwhile, Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi postpones a visit to Turkey for a second time. We'll have more. Also ahead, with the main opposition boycotting the polls and accusations of threats and irregularities, what chance does Bangladesh have of seeing free and fair elections this weekend? We'll hear from Estonia's chief information officer about how Ukraine and NATO are preparing for a cyber war with Russia. When the physical war ends, it may get worse for us in terms of kind of the immediate tactical operational security situation, especially in the cyberspace plus the newspapers and the lighter news headlines from South Korea. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. The US, UK and 10 other countries have warned Houthi rebels in Yemen to stop attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea. Donald Trump has asked the Supreme Court to reverse a ruling that barred him from running for president in Colorado. And Japanese authorities say a passenger jet that collided with a Coast Guard aircraft at Tokyo's Haneda Airport had been given permission to land, but the smaller plane had not been cleared for takeoff. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, in Iran, the Supreme Leader has promised a harsh response after nearly 100 people were killed by two explosions in the southeastern city of Kaman. The blasts were near the Sahab al-Zaman Mosque, where thousands of people had gathered to mark the anniversary of the death of a senior general who was killed in a US drone strike four years ago. Meanwhile, the Iranian Prime Minister Ibrahim Raisi had been expected to visit the Turkish capital Ankara today in order to hold talks with his Turkish counterpart Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Last night, the trip was cancelled. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined now by our Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. A very good morning to you, Hannah. Good morning. So we have two big stories to cover this morning. Uh, Let's address the Iranian blast first. Is there any indication about who would attack the commemoration of General Soleimani's death? Because people are pointing fingers in different directions. The US is saying it's it's various factions, possibly as far as Afghanistan, whereas uh, Iran is pointing the finger at the likes of Israel. Yeah, I mean, Iran is not short of enemies, let's put it like that. I mean... Obviously, it's not a surprise that Iran would come out and blame Israel and the US, particularly given that it was a US drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani four years ago uh, in the first place. And I, I think, you know, it's not outside the realms of possibility that, uh, that that could be true. But it's also true, you know, as the US is claiming, there are a huge number of groups, some of them kind of Sunni extremist groups, other ones, Iranian opposition groups. There are a lot of enemies to this regime. So, you know, I think, yeah, as I said, it's not surprising. Um, you know, it's very much part of the kind of Iranian rhetoric uh, to blame uh, Israel and the US 
and that's what usually happens when there is an attack in Iran. Um, I, I doubt whether we're going to see any kind of real investigation from the Iranian authorities or a real kind of explanation of what happened. Um, but I think, you know, the, the really dangerous thing is the time that this has come at. You know, just a day after uh, the assassination of the Hamas leader in Beirut, obviously also on this really sensitive anniversary of, of the assassination of Soleimani as well. So, um, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not only the fact that it happened, it's the fact that it's so opaque that could, that could prove dangerous over the next few days. Indeed, the, the, the warnings are coming that, as you just mentioned, if you have the assassination of the deputy head of Hamas in uh, Lebanon, then you have this explosion taking place in Iran. Fears of blame and fears of uh, very sharp reactions could prompt something which many people have been very scared of, which is a spillover of the conflict in Gaza. Yeah, that's the fear, right? And it does feel like everything's been sort of ramping up since the new year. You know, the Israel's saying that its operations are going to continue throughout 2024. Obviously, that's you know really going to anger countries like Iran and also like Turkey. Um, and then these these two events, the assassination and then also the bombing. Um, you know, I, I think it is a really really dangerous period. We've also got attacks coming from the Houthis in the Red Sea as well. Um, you know, and I I think one of the dangers not only of spillover is that events like this are going to pull Turkey even further out of the Western orbit, just at the time when the West really needs President Erdogan on side. Let's talk about what was supposed to be happening in Ankara today. Um, we were supposed to be seeing the Iranian Prime Minister Ibrahim Raisi. He had been expected to hold talks with um, his Turkish counterpart Recep Tayyip Erdogan. That is now not happening, but it is not the first time that he has cancelled a trip at the last minute. This was supposed to happen in November, wasn't it. Yeah, I, I mean, this is, uh, let's say, unfortunate for Turkey. So in the November trip, was shrouded in all kinds of confusion. Um, you, Turkey said the trip was on, it was never confirmed uh, by the Iranian government. And then in the end, Raisi didn't come in November, and it was all sort of brushed under the carpet on the Turkish side. Now, this trip was very much on. It was meant to be Erdogan's uh, first visitor of 2024. Um, the, the main thing on their agenda was going to be Gaza and also um, this idea that you know, has been talked about in some of Turkey's pro-government press about an idea that Erdogan wanted to put forward for a peace deal uh, with guarantors. Now, I, I guess Turkey would be putting itself forward as a guarantor there. Again, some questions about you know whether Israel's going to accept any kind of plan at the moment. Um, but the other interesting thing is, you know, according to the Turkish press, this meeting is very much not cancelled. It is delayed. That's the word that they're using. So I think, you know, Turkey really keen to show that there is this kind of, um, you know, relationship between these two very powerful, very influential countries in the Middle East. It's a very difficult situation, isn't it? Because Turkey and Iran ordinarily have very difficult relationships, not least because of the likes of, of, of Syria. But when you have something like Gaza, you have two countries who have common meeting points here, don't we? Namely, a support of Hamas. Yeah, absolutely. And that is more the case now than it was at the end of November. You know, one of the things that was kind of being banded around November, the kind of reticence of Racy to come, uh, it seemed at that time, was that Erdogan was still trying to hedge his bets a little bit, you know, throwing support behind the Palestinians, but also saying, you know, what happened in Israel on October the 7th uh, was a crime, it shouldn't have happened. Since then, Erdogan 
He's seen his efforts to kind of insert himself as a mediator to, to get hostages out fail. That's fallen to Qatar. Um, and he's become increasingly bombastic against Israel. He's really moved further towards uh, the position of Iran. Now, on the one hand, you know, that's good for Erdogan. It's good for him domestically. On the other hand, you know, on a world stage, is it really good for him? I mean, it, he's less and less able to kind of claim himself as the mediator that he really wanted to be at the start of this conflict. And I think, you know, these kind of meetings with Raisi, they might look good to a home audience, but it's very, very difficult to see how either you know, Israel or any of its Western allies, particularly the US, would accept some kind of deal with, with a country like Iran involved as a guarantor. How much would Turkey be able to pull strings, though? Because it still has kept commercial ties with Israel, which has prompted criticism from certain quarters, but could actually be quite... It- influential in this situation? Yeah, Turkey's an interesting one. I mean, you know, Erdogan has his rhetoric for, for political reasons and also for personal reasons. You know, he's a pious Muslim. He's clearly a you know, person who very strong support of the Palestinians. But he's also, you know, <laughs> quite uh, pragmatic, let's say, when it comes to the economy, particularly at the moment. Um, trade with Israel is continuing. Turkey's actually benefited in some ways um, from what's going on in Israel. I was reading an article yesterday about how cruise ships are, are diverting to Turkey rather than Israel in the Med at the moment. So it's actually seeing some boost from that. And that was one of the things that Israel, that, sorry, that Iran was quite critical of at the start of this conflict. You know, it saw a bit of hypocrisy. Um, so I think that's one of the things that um, not necessarily that Erdogan can use for pressure, but I think that other people, other leaders in the Middle East might use to pressure Erdogan. They see very clearly, very clear-eyed that you know, everyone says one thing, but actually mm, Turkey's policy is somewhere in the middle still. Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul. Thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. You with Monaco Radio. in Dhaka, 7.10am here in London. Now, in three days, Bangladesh votes in its general election. The Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, looks to win a fourth term as the main opposition parties are boycotting the election. Well, from Berlin now, I'm joined by Ishrat Hussain, who's a doctoral researcher in international relations at the University of Oxford. A very good morning to you, Ishrat. Thank you. Good morning to you as well. So there are huge allegations here that the election cannot be free, nor can it be fair. So could you lay lay out these reasons, please? Yes. Uh, So first of all, um, as you mentioned, that the opposition is boycotting the election. So that's one of the reasons why the election has been questioned, that whether it can be um, a credible election. And the reason for their boycott is that they allege that uh, an, an election under um, an incumbent government will not be free and fair. Um, and they have some grounds for it because um, in the last two elections that were held under um, this government that was in 2014 and 2018, they were marred by allegations of um, irregularities and some um, and, and rigging and, and etc. So um, these uh, allegations um, have questioned um, another election under an incumbent government. And the second reason is that there has been a lot of international attention on this election. Um, and uh, the attention is mainly centered on the Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina, who is now running for her fourth term. And um, this has made questions about Bangladesh's um, trajectory 
from a parliamentary uh, democracy to uh, more of an authoritarian state. And if she wins this election, which she is likely to win, um, she will be on her, her fourth um, consecutive term, which is an unprecedented um, situation for any leader in Bangladesh. And, and these reasons have questioned whether Bangladesh is uh, still a democracy or it is becoming a one-party state. So for these reasons, this this question has become, you know, a center of attention and has been um, called whether it can be called as a fair uh, election. Um, the opposition have have called for Sheikh Hasina to resign for a, for what they're describing as a neutral authority to to, to replace the, the government. Um, but the fact that it is not contesting the poll is is suggesting that actually this leaves the door wide open for Sheikh Hasina to, to take back power because it's impossible to contest it to say that an election is fraudulent when you have no opposition in it. That's true. And this makes it easy for the Sheikh Hasina regime to, to say that we tried to invite and make all the offers to the opposition, but they did not participate. So it's not our fault. But if we look back in the last two elections and that were held under this government, uh, one of which uh, the opposition actually boycotted in 2014, where 153 candidates won without any any opposition. But in 2018, uh, the, the main opposition BNP actually joined the polls and that was marred by rigging and and a lot of uh, irregularities so based on these two experiences now for this third time um the bangladesh nationalist party can say that we have joined one election in the past under an incumbent government but um we have seen the result of that so we will not take that chance what does another term in power for sheikh hasina mean for bangladesh i think it it means that there will be an absolute um, consolidation of power under um, a, one political party. So it, it it will effectively become an one party state. And Sheikh Hasina will also have, um, you know, a lot of challenges to manage um, in her um, in her fourth term. Uh, those challenges will mainly come uh, from um, the economic situation that Bangladesh is currently in, in inflation um, ha, ha, has been in the double digit for the last few months. There has been a lot of crisis in the banking sector. Um, the reserve, the foreign reserve, is dwindling. So these are all the things that uh, that Sheikh Hasina need uh, needs to um, address in the immediate term, and she also needs to address the internal fractions that are going on inside her party, which will be a result for, from, from this, elections, uh, uh, this election because um, she has encouraged a lot of independent candidates from her own party to stand in the election to make it look like um, a, a contested election since the opposition, main opposition is not, is not um, contesting. So these factors will make it sort of a, a challenging uh, fourth term for, for Sheikh Hasina, at least in, in, in the beginning. What do you think it will take for change to occur in Bangladesh? I think it is a, a little unpredictable at this stage uh, because with each election, there has been different types of theories and speculations about how uh, Sheikh Hasina's rule might uh, come to an end. But uh, each time she has outmaneuvered her domestic rivals as well as her international critics. Um, so at this stage, I think it is difficult to predict how a, a change might occur.
Let's talk a little bit about the international community. Some are suggesting that actually that India is a big player in this, that insofar as um, the, the the trade relationship between Dhaka and Delhi in terms of the supply of many essential commodities like rices, pulses, etc. There, there is a huge influence from next door, from India, and, and, and India is supporting a friendly regime in Sheikh Hasina. How, how true is that? It is quite true uh, because India has a multifaceted relationship with Bangladesh. It is, of course, one of the largest trading partner, as you mentioned. Um, um, apart from that, there are corporations on resource management, um, also in the energy sector. There are shared concerns over countering extremism. Um, and, and there is also a strong people-to-people cooperation. There is road links and you know, railway links and all these things. So there is an emphasis on connectivity. So, so overall, it's it's a, a very strong relationship. And India in general sees the Awami League and, and Sheikh Hasina um, as a reliable partner in, in maintaining these links. Um, and India is also very suspicious of uh, of the opposition BNP, um, not only because they have um, uh, put forward anti-India policy in the past, uh, but they have also shown um, a propensity to to be um, in in coalition with Islamist political parties, which India is not. Uh, very keen to see. So, um, so India will be uh, keen to uh, have Sheikh Hasina on power and Awami League continue as long as possible, because the alternative to that is is quite uncertain for them and is also unpredictable. And the wider global community, I mean, much of the world buys Bangladeshi garments. Um, and I think it was in September that the US, um, which is the top buyer of clothing from Bangladesh, said that it was going to put a ban, a visa ban on officials who are undermining the democratic election process. So the parts of the world are aware of, of the troubles that are affecting the, the democratic process in, in Bangladesh. How much does Bangladesh care about this? I think Bangladesh cares about it moderately, I would say, because when the ban uh, was introduced, uh, a few elections after that was uh, relatively uh, free and fair uh, because there was a fear of how um, this might affect um, um, the country and the officials who are involved. But eventually, as we have seen that as the time progress, this the, the effect of that has been uh, quite, um, you know, dialed down. And um, uh, although Bangladesh is one of the largest um, suppliers of uh, garment industries in uh, garment products in in the US, and it is also a considerable development partner of Bangladesh, um, I think the Bangladesh is um, does not see it a- as important that it will be allowing uh, the country to interfe- interfere in the in their uh, domestic politics. So um, I think the threat uh, has not been um, strong enough to deter um, Taka. Uh, from uh, holding um, an, a one-sided election. Hence, I would say that it has, the visa sanction has um, a limited success. Um, and also, um, the U.S. has not specified how the sanctions will turn out. There has not been any example or a very few, I think a couple of examples of how it has, it actually plays in, in, in reality. So that might also play a role um, that, that Dhaka does not know how it will all, all, all turn out, so they're not 
they are not betting on those chances. Ishrat Hussain, Doctoral Research in International Relations at the University of Oxford. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You are The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio, Nina Dos Santos, international broadcast correspondent and former CNN Europe editor. Good morning, Nina. Good morning. Good to have you back around the microphone. Um, we have to talk about Jeffrey Epstein and these this astonishing swathe of documents that's been released now. Tell us what's yeah. in them. Well, these are declassified documents that are pertaining to a defamation lawsuit that Virginia Dufresne, you remember, uh, the main accuser of Jeffrey Epstein, who claims that she was uh, the victim of sex trafficking for many years. Um, this is somebody who Prince Andrew settled a claim with to the tune of about 17 million uh, a year and a half ago. Um, she had launched a defamation case against um uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, who, of course, as we now know, since about a year and a half, has been serving a 20-year sentence for her role uh, inside this whole affair. Uh, she's appealing that. But as part of this uh, counterclaim uh, that Virginia Dufresne had uh, launched uh, a while ago when um, Ghislaine Maxwell had dismissed her, char- her allegations and said that she was a liar... Um, these documents had been, you know, uh, taken lots of depositions from uh, many of the victims, citing about 150 names of very important people who allegedly had links to Jeffrey Epstein, maybe even visited his island where some of these alleged sex attacks had taken place. Um, and this is the first cache of documents that have been unsealed. Up until now, we had seen redacted parts of these documents that referred to people in those, you know, famous anonymous pseudonyms like. J. Doe, but now we're finally seeing the names come out. And there's a list of people who are mentioned. It has to be said that, you know, not all of them are mentioned in unpleasant context. Sometimes they're just uh, references to people who Jeffrey Epstein knew. One of the names that has come up that has really grabbed people's attention overnight is that of the former US President Bill Clinton. Um, but also other names include, include David Copperfield, the magician, and Michael Jackson, who apparently Jeffrey Epstein also knew quite well. We see the former presidents, Donald Trump and Bill Clinton, mentioned in the documents. Um, there is no suggestion that there is any wrongdoing um, these two associated with those two men. But there are suggestions, aren't there? I think the, the British press, at least, is pretty interested in, in Prince Andrew, um, who has for a very, very long time been associated with the, with the story. And the, the, the suggestion is, is that there was this island, wasn't there? Jeffrey Epstein's island in the US Virgin Islands. That, um, Ghislaine Maxwell it appears to say that Prince Andrew visited Jeffrey Epstein's island in, in the US Virgin Islands. Um, and, and, it's, and it's one of those suggestions that the, the more you, you, you start to sort of have create this pattern, don't you? 
Yes, and this island in particular uh, is one that came up time and time again in witness testimony from um, women who were then underage girls who claimed that they were trafficked there and trapped there on this island and used and abused for the sexual gratification of the late financier Jeffrey Epstein. And some of them, like Virginia Dufay, also claim that they were abused by business associates and friends of his, powerful men. His names have been mentioned. Many of those um, have contested those allegations. And there have been in the past uh, question marks of whether or not um, some of the testimonies of some of these young women um, were 100% um, accurate because of their age, because of the vulnerability. Um, and that is something that has consistently continued to play out both in the court of, you know, uh, the, the real courts in the United States and in the court of public opinion and various documentaries that have been made on this. Um, but the reality is, is that, you know, this is still a case where... Ghislaine Maxwell is now in prison behind bars, has been for a year and a half, facing a 20-year sentence that she's trying to appeal. Jeffrey Epstein killed himself behind bars in 2019, awaiting um, being tried on these types of charges. And this is the first cache of documents that's mentioned, but there's going to be more caches of documents that are going to be unsealed. I have to say, when it comes to this first chunk, there aren't huge bombshells there. As we were saying before, there are names, and that will obviously plunge lots of these people just by virtue of association into a reputational back hole. Um, but there's potentially more information that's going to come out over the next few weeks. It does actually make you wonder what, how much this, this revelation changes things, apart from, as you said, perhaps to give more credibility to young women who in the past will have had doubts cast over them. Well, absolutely. And uh, this has been a, a long-running um, case. These testimonies date back to 2016, and they've been sealed since then. In fact, it was the Miami Herald, you remember, um, that famously busted the whole story open um, with some great investigative journalism um, all those years ago, because obviously uh, some of these alleged attacks, uh, these attacks were said to have taken place in not just the US Virgin Islands, but also Palm Beach in Florida as well. Um, and this comes came hot on the heels as well of the Me, uh, the Me Too movement and the allegations levelled against Harvey Weinstein that he's obviously behind bars for. So hopefully, again, it's more grist to the mill in terms of, you know, um, making sure that abuses of power are held to account. What I would say, though, is that there's still lots of questions that remain unanswered about not just Ghislaine Maxwell and her relationship with Jeffrey Epstein, her role in all of this... Um, but also Jeffrey Epstein himself and how he managed to amass such a huge fortune of $580 million and such an impressive black book of contacts with important, and it has to be said, uh, middle-aged men whose, in some cases, whose names have come up time and time again in connection with what appears to have been one of the most um, abhorrent and widespread international sex trafficking rings that we've seen in our generation. Let's move to another story. Uh, the UK and allies, I think there's 12 of them, aren't there? 12 countries have issued a final warning to Houthis over, over Red Sea attacks. And this is in the, the article in The Times is suggesting this. Um, this came last night after a UN Security Council meeting. And this this final warning i mean you do wonder what that's going to mean or what the effects of that isn't it i mean we feel quite crestfallen when you i don't know it's almost like wagging their finger saying please stop well one always gets very worried um when it comes to um final warnings particularly in places like the middle east where there's many different um there's different 
different dynamics, different agendas and different power plays that are all happening in three dimensions contemporaneously. What's interesting about this statement is that it doesn't just come from the UK and the United States. They do have some military heft that they can throw at this problem, sending you know warships to the region, RAF planes and so on and so forth. Um, but also it's backed up by 10 other countries as well. And you're talking about some important Middle Eastern countries like Bahrain, as small as it might be with its important links to nearby Saudi Arabia um, and other countries around the world. So it's a deliberate, united show of force here to say this is unacceptable. And there's a reason for uh, them doing this now. It's obviously because this is really starting to cost shipping companies dear. Um, 15% of global seaborne trade goes around this route through the Red Sea rather than taking the longer, much more expensive, uh, you know, and fuel expensive route around Africa. And the world, particularly Western economies, Europe, the UK, our economies are in a very precarious position and they're just trying to recover from a huge spike in inflation, um, supply chain issues caused by the pandemic. The last thing that the world needs is shipping to be further affected and become more expensive as a result of this. And even if the ships do go the long way temporarily around Africa, the reality is that um, that's only a short-term solution because insurance rates for insuring these types of ships in this part of the world are already starting to spike. It's an absolute masterstroke to make a, a war which in Gaza, which can seem rather irrelevant to daily life, suddenly touch absolutely everybody. Because if you, if you stymie the private sector, then everybody feels it. The fact remains, though, is that if you're going to have a threat of what next? Military, I mean, you mentioned military action there. That is a step which is an absolute igniting a tinderbox, surely. Yeah, and I think if we look back towards the days of Barack Obama when he was US president talking about chemical weapons attacks in Syria being a red line, drawing the red line in that sand that then sadly was crossed with very um, little US pushback in that case and in other cases, um, I think the United States is to a certain extent paying the price for stepping back and becoming more isolated over the last few years in terms of the heft that it has in the Middle East. And I'm not just talking uh, with Arab countries, I'm also talking about with Israel as well, because the other piece of news that I'm sure you're going to mention next is um, members of right-wing Israeli politics starting to talk about resettling people from Gaza, something that, again, the United States and other allies of Israel have said is an absolute no-no. But um, the leverage that the United States and the UK have in these parts of the world has been waning, particularly, as I was saying, with the US, because of these sort of final warnings that then never get followed through. And there is this sense, well, let's move on to the story that you, you were talking about that's in the Times. Israel in talks to resettle Gazans in Africa a deeply troubling headline. But then it says US condemns Netanyahu ministers for backing occupation of, of Strip. So you have this secondary narrative, don't you, of the US trying to condemn and push and cajole and, and, and do what it can with Israel. But there is very much a sense that Israel will just carry on with its own path. I think there's two things going on here. So this is interesting. This is a report in the Times, London Times today, citing um, Israeli newspapers who are citing, yet again, members of the Israeli political landscape that are Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister's uh, par former partners in government and partners in coalition and so on and so forth. Um, so on the one hand, it's not really clear whether or not these politicians are expressing their own personal and right-wing view. Many of them are big proponents of the settler movement, uh, which presumably would like to move straight into Gaza um, 
and take territory from uh, the Palestinians. It's not clear whether or not they're talking from their own personal point of view or whether or not this is a dictated government policy. But um, it does hint in a very, very uncomfortable direction, obviously, given the, the history of the creation of the State of Israel back in 1948, when, of course, um, you know, we had forcible displacement of uh, Palestinian citizens and many of those people who are generations of, you know, what they call the Nakba, the catastrophe, um, from 1948, are still living in other countries nearby, like Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt itself wants to make sure that it doesn't become the next country um, where that would happen. In the case of this article in the Times, though, they're talking about potentially um, displacing people to some of the poorest countries of Africa. We're talking about the Democratic Republic of Congo. I mean, how on earth these types of countries would ever be able to um, sustain and support uh, refugees coming from anywhere, let alone um, displaced people from so far away as, as Gaza is is really is quite upsetting to see, really, to be quite honest with you. Nina Dos Santos, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. The time here in London is 7.33. A quick look now at the latest headlines. Twelve countries, including the US and UK, have warned Houthi rebels in Yemen to stop attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea. The UN Security Council has met to discuss the crisis, which is disrupting international trade. The warning is widely being interpreted as a threat of military action against targets in Yemen. Donald Trump has asked the US Supreme Court to reverse a ruling that bars him from running for president in Colorado. The state's top court had stated it had found convincing evidence Mr Trump was involved in insurrection at the time of the 2021 US Capitol riot. And Japanese authorities say a passenger jet that collided with a Coast Guard aircraft at Tokyo's Haneda Airport had been given permission to land, but the smaller plane had not been cleared for takeoff. All 379 people aboard the JAL Airbus A350 managed to evacuate after it erupted into flames following Tuesday's crash with a Coast Guard turboprop shortly after landing. Five out of the six on board the smaller plane were killed. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. here in London. Now, Estonia has long been a country known for its advanced skills in the areas of digital technology and cybersecurity. What's less known is how this country has helped Ukraine prepare for the cyber warfare that's been crucial to its defence against Russia's invasion. On Monocle's Chris Chermak heard from Lukas Ilves. He's Estonia's chief information officer, or the government IT guy, as he likes to call himself. Lukas began by talking about how Estonia and Ukraine are cooperating before the war. Estonians, you know, view Ukrainians as fellow travelers. We we escaped from the from the same Soviet prison in the early 90s. And in the last decade, you know, there's been a lot of collaboration between Estonia and Ukraine also on building digital government and, and the digital transformation of Ukraine. And that really picked up pace in 2019. And President Zelensky came in with a very strong vision of how he wanted to reform Ukraine and really bring it into the West. And a big part of that was digital transformation. So one of his first trips abroad was to Tallinn. And he said here to his team, you know, the Estonians have, I want, go build it. And he had his own version of that, which is a state and a smartphone. And the thing is that that wasn't unique in the sense that plenty of leaders have come here and said, we're going to do the same thing. What was different is Ukrainians actually did it. And they just 
have moved incredibly quickly with incredible determination. And I certainly don't want to take credit for it. I mean, we're proud of what they've done. It's very much been them, and we're, we're privileged that we were able to help them in doing all that. And that got them in 2022 into a position where when the war happened, they were able to, as a government and as a state, react much more agilely than most governments would in a situation like that. The way they launched new services in weeks, the way in which they kind of came up with these entirely new categories of services that you hope no government has to to, ever build, you know, proof of war crime or paying in a refugee support. But they had that know-how and that capability to do that in weeks. And so I think what you see there is, yeah, doing digital government well and, and modernizing in public administration, it's convenient and it's popular in peacetime, but it also gives you capabilities that are essential to the fo- sovereign functioning of a state. So we, we, we continue to work a lot with Ukraine on the sort of digital government side. And then the other bit of work is, of course, cyber. And similarly there, our, you know, before the war happened, we were among the Western allies that were very closely supporting the CERT and the sort of various cyber teams in Ukraine, because what's happened, and this gets us into sort of the cyber component of the war, is that, first of all, cyber has been a significant part of the war. You know, when, when the bombs are flying, it becomes less visible. And while there's been activity by Russia and, and friends of Russia outside of Ukraine, Ukraine has borne the brunt of the sort of the cyber war, too. And so in the same way that we say, you know, on the battlefield that Ukraine is really out there fighting for all of us, I'd also say they're fighting a cyber war for all of us. Tell me more about that. Yeah. I mean, you, you said Ukraine is bearing the brunt, but what, what does that mean yeah. for NATO, for, for yeah. the rest of the countries yeah. as well? So if we fast forward to February of 2022, the first shots in that phase of the war were fired in cyberspace. And thankfully, most of them were unsuccessful. I mean, and Russia basically tried to, you know, had penetrated or attempted to penetrate much of critical infrastructure in Ukraine. But because of uh, an effort called Defend Forward, spearheaded by the U.S. with other allies, which has gotten public, plenty of public attention, that was basically undone. So the state of Ukrainian critical infrastructure is really in very good shape when the war started. And I think it's interesting to look at the counterfactual. I mean, remember, the, the Russian battle plan was a blitzkrieg that would get to Kiev in 72 hours. Now, suppose that the power had gone out, the communications hadn't been working, water hadn't been flowing, you know, the trains hadn't been running, and you, you can go on with that list. What's the effect that would have had on Ukraine's defense? Now, that's a pure speculation, but I'm sure it, you know, it would have made the remarkable resistance we saw in the first days of the war much more difficult. So that was the Russian plan. And it failed, by and large, precisely because Ukrainians, with help, had prepared. And I think this then gets us back to what does this mean for for NATO and and the West and so on, which is right now the Russian cyber capability is directed at Ukraine because it's supporting the war effort. Now, let's say the war ends in weeks, months, or, you know, I I would hope weeks or months, not years. But when, when the war is over, if they're no longer focused on achieving tactical and operational aims in Ukraine and they have the skills and the capabilities and those haven't gone away, what are they going to be doing with them? Are they only going to be focusing them at Ukraine? Probably not. So, you know, one of the paradoxes is that when the physical war ends, it may get worse for us in terms of kind of the immediate tactical operational security situation, especially in the cyberspace. Particularly, as you mentioned, you know, after this war is over, that's yep. when the cyber war potentially begins. So what, what can yep. Ukraine offer the West on that and even a country like Estonia? Tons. So... The war has been an incredible accelerator of technology and capabilities in Ukraine. And I, you know, 
the volume and the quality of Ukrainian military and defense and security capabilities, cyber and elsewhere that emerges will be amazing, basically. You know, they have moved in leaps and bounds. And, and so I just assume that basically they will see things, know things, be able to do things that we can't do. And, you know, every way in which we can absorb that knowledge commercially, through collaboration, et cetera, is, is to our benefit. You know, today, that's one bit. Today, you know, also because they're exposed to attacks we're not exposed to, it's just we, we get intelligence and understanding of, of, you know, enemy operations that we, we wouldn't otherwise ourselves have. And my hope, and, and I think the, the hope of the Estonian government, is that as soon as possible that takes the form not just of bilateral cooperation, but Ukraine being an active member of NATO and the European Union. The way these organizations work is, is collective, you know, collectively working together. And as a small country, I mean, we see that and feel the importance of that every day. I think that it is only to the benefit of our collective security to bring Ukraine into our embrace as much as possible. That was Chris Chermak there speaking with Estonia's Lucas Ilvas. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Just nudging 41 minutes past midnight in Phoenix. It's 8.41 here in, uh, sorry, 7.41 here in London, 8.41 if you're listening in Zurich. Now, four points along the border between the US and Mexico are to reopen after a drop in the number of people crossing illegally. The US is to restart operations at an international bridge in Eagle Pass in Texas, two crossings in Arizona and another near San Diego in California. The openings coincide with a furious row in Congress in which increased border security was Mexico. Mexico is being marked as a condition by the Republicans in any agreement about future support for Ukraine. Well, Natasha Lindstedt is a professor of government at the University of Essex and joins me now. Very good morning to you, Natasha. Good morning. So just explain to us what the situation has been up until this point with the reopening of the Four Points. Well, up until this point, we've seen just a huge surge in migrants at the border. I mean, just last month, there were 300,000 migrants. And this is really record numbers. Uh, It was really, really high in in, in 2022, around 200,000. But if you were to look back in the years 2010, 12, 13, 14, you know, you would have somewhere around four, like 14, 15,000 migrants. And it dipped to about 16,000 during the coronavirus period. Um, But there's just been this huge surge of them. And you see that the Republicans have really taken this on as a centerpiece of their uh, campaign strategy. Not only are they tying changes to border policy to any kind of aid package to Ukraine, um, but they want to make huge changes to the way that the U.S. deals with immigration. They want to make it more difficult for migrants to claim asylum in the U.S. They want to deport or detain more of those who cross the border, and then they want to ensure that they keep them out of the country, keep them basically in Mexico while they await a decision on whether or not they've been allowed to to enter. And Biden has been open to some kind of negotiation on this, but whatever he does doesn't seem to please the far right, which want even more extreme changes than some of the things I, I mentioned. I mean, actually, some of the border policies that Republican candidate Ron DeSantis has said have been illegal. He, he had called for um, basically executing drug dealers that cross in from from Mexico. Um, He's also called for ending automatic granting of citizenship. And, and, you know, the Trump campaign uh, has been uh, focused on this all the time. Trump has notably said that migrants are poisoning the blood of our country and he wants to 
continue on with this horrible um, separation policy of migrant children and their parents. So why are these four points now being opened? They're now being open uh, because they have had a, a dip in the number of migrants from the month of November. So in December, there had been a, 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 a drop in the number of migrants um, and they want to start opening you know, negotiation with, with the uh, Republicans about coming up with some kind of plan forward and that's basically what the white house has said they they they're trying to to cooperate on this um but the republicans have visited the border recently house speaker mike johnson visited the border and they're making a huge deal about this and they're actually even pursuing an impeachment proceeding with homeland security secretary alejandro mayorkas uh, and it's not sustainable to have these border points closed. It, it then leads to all kinds of other problems at other points. Uh, so they they have to pursue some kind of practical policy at the moment, but they're not agreeing on things because both sides are, are struggling to find a compromise. Very briefly, Natasha, the, the opening of these four points, what will this mean for the debate in Congress about aid for Ukraine? I think it's going to delay uh, any kind of agreement on the Ukraine uh, situation because Mike Johnson is under so much pressure from radical right House Republicans to to not uh, give in uh, uh, unless they go for a much more extreme policy on the border that's not really implementable. And so they're basically tying this to Ukraine aid. So I, I think we're going to see much bigger delays. Natasha Lindstedt, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Seven forty-five here in London. Let's talk trade and economy with Vicky Price, who's an economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service, and a regular voice here on Monocle Radio. Good morning, Vicky. Good morning. Uh, let's talk about interest rates, inflation, and mortgages. Things are changing fast, aren't they? They are. I mean, what we've seen in the UK in the last few days is um, an intensification of what is now being called the mortgage rate war. Uh, so interest rates are coming down, not, of course, the bank rate yet, which is stubbornly stuck at 5.25% for the time being. Um, but certainly the markets have been anticipating a fall in interest rates taking place over the course of the year, and they're pricing it in already. So uh, good news for those looking to renew the mortgages, even though, of course, we're still talking about mortgage rates, uh, two-year and five-year fixes. Two-year, certainly, which are coming down to just under 4%, which I think is uh, still twice as large as it was uh, a couple of years ago when people were doing their, their, their sort of mortgage fixing at the time, um, but still considerably lower than over 6% that we saw uh, quite recently. So yes, something is happening. The inflation profile is improving. And what we're seeing, of course, is the US has um, also published the the minutes of the last uh, Federal Reserve meeting, uh, which did hint at interest rate reductions. And what you see there is a, a pretty benign outlook uh, for inflation, which, of course, has come down a lot faster than had been anticipated. We're now talking about under 3% in the US for some time um, has been the case in terms of you know, the latest CPI data. 
uh, consumer price inflation. Um, and uh, concerns that perhaps the increase in interest rates that we've seen so far has harmed the economy because they're talking about moderating growth rates and concerns that perhaps, uh, you know, the economy is going to suffer as a result of those very substantial, you know, very sharp and very fast interest rate increases we saw over the past year and a half. Vicky, it's not often that I hear you say the words benign and moderating. They, they seem to be quite peaceful words in, a, in an environment where the world is no less unstable. So what's prompted this settling? It's energy prices that have come down. I mean, that's the main thing. It's why inflation went up to begin with, not really because of excess demand, although there have been loads of people suggesting that maybe money supply increase was the reason why, over the period of COVID, of course, um, why we had those very substantial inflation uh, uh, rises, which worried everybody. But of course, it was energy, particularly since the war in Ukraine. Things were stabilizing quite well um, just before that. And expectations were that inflation would come back to something more normal. It had risen because of uh, the COVID supply imbalances. Well, um, that, of course, was uh, torpedoed, if you like, by uh, what had been happening in Ukraine. And uh, since then, of course, energy prices have come down quite significantly as the world stabilizes. But you're quite right. Uh, a lot of things around us are pretty unstable still. And there is always the concern. What's going on in the Eastern Mediterranean, for example, uh, for a while we thought that perhaps oil prices would go up very significantly with OPEC price uh, uh, production cuts as well. But that hasn't really happened. But the political instability and and the intensification of what looks like the sort of war in, in Eastern Mediterranean is is a worry. Plus, of course, the attacks on, on uh, ships in, uh, um, in the Red Sea. And that is concerning because freight prices have already gone up. The rates that, that, that um, uh, the, the company's charge for moving things around has gone up very significantly. And that will be reflected eventually in prices in the shops as well. But for the moment, uh, we are in a downwards trend and, and let's hope that that continues. Tell me a little bit more about how long it might take for consumers to see the effect of this crisis in the Red Sea. Because if you have, um, as we mentioned in the paper review a, a little earlier, if you have so much of the world's uh, shipping going through the Red Sea, I think it's 15% of the world's cargo going through there, and it's having to go around um, a much, much longer and more expensive route, then that is inevitably going to push prices back up again. Yes, it does take a little bit of time, but it's interesting. During the, the, the COVID period, when, of course, we had some huge problems with supply chains, um, quite a lot of work has been done in the US and elsewhere linking the delivery times, so how long it actually takes for, for a product to arrive um, at the um, end of its destination. Sometimes that end uh, is measured by what happens at the factory, um, and at other times is what uh, happens when it gets to the consumer. So obviously there are various stages in between, but there are very clear links between delivery times going up and producer price inflation going up. So producer prices rising. So those are the ones at the factory gate and then also consumer prices. So uh, there is a clear link. There's a little bit of a gap. So it all depends on how long these disturbances now last. And we do know that, of course, you know, the world is sort of united to ensure that that, um, or at least the Western world, 
that this doesn't last for very long, but uh, we just don't know how long it will last. And there is a clear link. And if that continues, therefore, uh, yes, you could actually see prices for consumers going up. Um, and, and, and there are some sectors already screaming about this. So I'm afraid, yes, it is one to watch without any doubt. Uh, let's move to uh, business optimism, though, in, in, in a more wider sense. Um, looking in the United Kingdom, suggestions are that it, the UK is on the on a clear path to recession, but there is an improvement in business optimism. Tell us about this. is a morning of contradictions, Vicky, so you're going to have to work it all out for us. I'm afraid so. And you're absolutely right. Lots of contradictions. So in some ways, we're better than where we were. I mean, that's really the, the, the issue. And when we're talking about business confidence, in a way, improving, this is the British Chambers of Commerce latest survey that showed that revenues um, are going up, or at least expectations of revenues are going up. And we saw a very strong December for for various outlets. But that has been on the back of price cutting. So what we've seen in December in particular, uh, you know, supermarkets have been cutting prices quite significantly. And we've seen a very substantial drop in, in grocery uh, price inflation, the, the sharpest on record, by the way, um, between November and December, which is really quite extraordinary, uh, because people simply haven't been able to afford to buy goods um, that were priced as they were before. So we've seen a little bit of that revenues going up, particularly for large firms, and a bit of an improvement there for in confidence. But what is happening, though, is that some of those costs are still there in terms of the earlier input costs, the energy costs, staff costs going up, uh, and lots of firms still intend to raise prices over the next year. So I'm sure the Bank of England will be watching that very carefully. That's another contradiction there. But unfortunately, in terms of growth, we're seeing very little happening because companies are just refusing to invest. And if that is the case, then we are really in a flatlining situation in the UK, which actually you see in loads of other countries. Look at Europe, which, of course, you know some countries are already in recession. So there is a concern that perhaps in the UK too, although businesses seem to be doing slightly better, but what it might mean for the economy is not very much, unfortunately. Vicky Price, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Let's head to Seoul for a look at the more light-hearted stories coming out of South Korea. I'm joined now by Stephen Borowick, who's a staff writer for Nikkei Asia in Seoul. Uh, a very good afternoon to you, Stephen. Hello, good afternoon. The destinations now seem to be, well, um, not just the, the, the more modern shopping malls, but um, T-Mobility apparently was suggesting that everybody was trying to get to the airport because that's where the best shops were. Uh, I don't know if people were going there just just to shop. I think that's probably just because uh, people were just traveling, and that's why they went to the airport. I mean, I could be mistaken about that. But uh, Koreans all tend to – there are these very concentrated periods of travel. A lot of Koreans work for smaller companies where they don't have a lot of flexibility as to when they can take time off. So if they want to travel – Either domestically or overseas, it tends to be very heavily concentrated in the December-January holiday period or uh, February. There's the, the Lunar New Year or there's a break period in uh, like late July and early August. So I think that probably explains a lot of the traffic to airports, though the major airports do here do have a lot of shopping options. Um Let's talk a little bit more about um, what Korea is doing to to welcome um, digital nomads. That it's a it's a term that has uh, emerged in some force since the uh, since the pandemic, and it is one of those places that, well, one of those ideas that if you are a country and you want to get international workers to come to you, the the idea of freeing things up for a digital nomad is it, an absolutely 
crucial idea. And Korea is doing this, isn't it? Yeah, they introduced a, a class of visa that an aspiring digital nomad can apply for. And the idea is that you can get this visa and you can stay in the country for a year and then possibly extend it for another year. And that would mean that you wouldn't have to just be here on like a 90-day tourist visa and you would, wouldn't have to go in and out. And this would allow you a little bit more stability. But it's just reading up on the like the government releases as to how and why they're doing this. One thing that is noteworthy is in order to apply to be eligible for this visa, you have to have a an income that is at least double the standard per capita South Korean income. So you have to be making about 80 million Korean won a year, which I mean is is not you know pro footballer money, but it's probably more than at least some of the types of people who are, you know, living on the go, it's probably beyond their income range. So that, that narrows the, the pool of eligible applicants. But I mean, at the same time, it, it makes sense when you consider why the South Korean government is pursuing this. I mean, they, they say quite clearly in the press release about this, that the objective of this is to help vitalize particular regions of South Korea in that they want more people staying there for a long term and they want people staying in hotels and eating in restaurants and providing a kind of boost to street level commerce in that way. So uh, time will tell just how many people take them up on the offer. Stephen Borowick, thank you so much for joining me on The Globalist. And that's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks for my guests and also thanks to our producers Isabella Jewell, Tom Webb and Chris Chermak. Our researcher was Monica Lillis and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London. Hope you can join me for that if you can. And The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.